Well, thanks a lot, uh, Massimo, for, for your comments. So let me start with the debate. I mean, I think we have at least until 3.30 or so to, to, to talk. We can leave before if there are no questions or, or if we deplete them. But let me um, send a few uh, questions directly to, to, to Peter. Um, first, perhaps I would like to know, um, I mean, it is clear that the book is not triumphalist because it, you know you you always sold uh, and, and here in the presentation as a, as a learning by doing process and there were many mistakes and and you know it is you know you were clear with that but I, I out of curiosity I would like you to to define what is the 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 the, the biggest shadow that you could identify in this. Uh, 15 years of European climate policies, perhaps. I mean, what's the the, the thing that uh, really uh, worked uh, worst, um, if there is any or a couple of them, with respect to expectations? I, I think, uh, I mean, you mentioned several things, carbon tax, over-allocation um, in the UETS, but uh, I mean, what's the most uh, you know, kind of uh, um, disappointing uh, in a way, uh, development of European climate policies. Second thing, um, we've been discussing here a lot about distributional issues lately. Uh, we had our annual conference um, one month ago. We had actually a round table on this. Mm -hmm. And uh, you talk about distributional issues in the book, but uh, only of part of these distributional issues, you know, I mean, you, you, you refer to this kind of uh, how the EU can be a prototype uh, because, I mean, we are dealing with these distributional differences among countries and perhaps this could be, uh, this could give lessons to, to the world where, of course, there are a lot of differences among countries and apparently we were able to, to cope with this through different mechanisms, effort sharing allocations, etc. right? So, but uh, you know, here we are quite worried with other type of distributional issues, not only among countries, but also within countries. And um, I would like to, to, to know your opinion about this. And of course, if we have cost-effective instruments, the costs are minimum, and, and therefore the distributional effects are, are probably also, uh, uh, you know, in, in, in size, uh, the minimum possible, but it is not the same that, you know, poor people uh, bear most of the costs of, a, of the climate policy than richer people do. Um, and finally, uh, we've been also discussing a lot uh, lately on, on the role of, of carbon pricing, of carbon taxation at, at the world level, right? We had uh, Marty Weitzman here, uh, Nicholas Stern talking about these issues, and you know it seems that, as, as, as Massimo said, this is coming back and very very strongly, and from America as well, um, with the climate clubs, etc. Right. So, so I would like to know your opinion on at, at the world level. I mean, what's your view on this? I mean, it's a, should we go rather than for a carbon tax for a group of emissions trading systems that are linked and uh, trying to get a, a price which is as uniform as possible. I mean, many people said that this is very difficult, very, very uh, challenging and, and perhaps even uh, impossible or undesirable. And therefore, they think that perhaps a kind of a global price, more in the form of tax, um, could work better. Or at least, uh, you know, that you have this global price and then, you know, um, national policies can be designed um, on, on, with that as a basis. So these are my, my, my three questions, comments, and uh, afterwards we go for the public and the audience. But this is where it gets hard, where <laughs> I haven't anything, you know, prepared in advance. Um, but there's, there's a few things I can say off the cuff. In terms, we, we obviously didn't want to be triumphalist in the book, although I think some people will read this and say it's very self-serving. 
um, the people who've written it are writing about their own work and saying how good it's been. Um, and in any case, it's very uncritical of the commission uh, because we're all still commission officials and had to have approval before we could publish. Um, but I think if you're looking for a controversial book about, you know, um, that, that's super critical, um, there are enough of them out there. And this, where I felt what hadn't been put on paper sufficiently was the case that we've that we argued that our, our version of why things have happened. And that's why I said at the beginning, that's why we wanted to talk about it, but we didn't want to talk about it in a triumphalist way, which would have probably turned people off. And certainly, if we want this to be a learning tool, we don't want to say we've got, we've seen the holy grail, we know how it should be done. It can't be moralizing. Um, I think EU policy has moved away from moralizing because it didn't work. Um, perhaps Kyoto, there were days when we were telling everyone to ratify and why aren't you and you must, you know, you must do so because it's a moral imperative and things. But however you might think it is or not a moral imper imperative, that sort of discourse did not win friends, did not work. Uh, the EU seemed preachy. And that went way out of fashion um, some years ago. And so now we try to, we just, we talk about it. And it's amazing how much commonality there is between policymakers in different jurisdictions. I occasionally meet North American colleagues and we have great discussions about things, um, the difficulties, the practical difficulties. Uh, and we can all learn from each other. If there's a disappointment though, Xavier, the one that has to be the major disappointment is that the, the attempt made in the 1990s to introduce a carbon tax at EU level was very bold. And there was momentum at the time, but just it did not happen. And it's, Joss and I started both of us on the tax file. Um, that's how we came to meet each other. Um, he was in the thick of it, and I was less in the thick of it, but I subsequently took over in the DG environment on energy taxation. Um, but I think Massimo has said it, it is the optimal, and it's talked about um, a lot, and you said in the United States in particular, but I think I've always been hearing some academics in the US saying it's the, by far the best thing to do. Um, and there have been all these sorts of ideas of, um, dividends and cap-and-trade schemes where everything's auctioned and then the money's distributed to people so as to win buy-in, if you like. It's all about, they're all, people are all struggling with trying to put a price on carbon and making it palatable. Um, but I don't think, I really don't think that the situation is different today than it was 20 years ago. And I don't think we would get an, a, a tax in the EU if we tried now, and I suspect the US won't come up with one. So I'm absolutely of your thinking that we've got to work with plan B. Uh, the, the legislative threshold, the, the institutional threshold of unanimity in the EU is a much higher threshold to work with than qualified majority voting with co-decision in the European Parliament. That is how we've made progress. That's detailed in the chapter one of the book, actually, about the institutional changes introduced by the single European Act um, in particular, and then the extension um, of the treaty provisions, most notably the Lisbon Treaty extended into energy policy, things that hadn't been said before. Um, so, you know, taxation has been the big disappointment in the background, but on the other hand, as I said last time I was here in May, um, Emissions trading happened because it wasn't a tax. There was bigger buy-in because we'd been through the trauma of not having succeeded in having a carbon tax industry opposed to carbon tax. And they said, we want something else. We want something more market friendly. We want something more flexible. And emissions trading was all of those things. So they had a harder time then saying, oh, but we don't want that either. Then they'd be, they began to, began to would have looked very insincere. So in a way, the taxation debate paved the 
paved the way for the emissions trading scheme to come about. And of course, with auctioning, I remember distinctly people saying, parliamentarians in the European Parliament saying, but an emissions trading is a tax in disguise. And me trying to argue back that it wasn't. But if you auction from the very beginning, it would have been a harder case to make that this was not a tax in disguise. But we didn't auction in the beginning. We started with free allocation in the beginning, so it didn't arise as a question. You couldn't contest the introduction of emissions trading on that score. And then once we had the scheme in place, the member states too realized that free allocation was a very hazardous way to allocate and that auctioning was more economically rational. So the member states themselves moved more willing to auction. So had the possibility, well, you know, what wasn't possible initially, what became possible later, but also if we had tried to go the whole way from the beginning, it might have been that we suddenly had a member state saying, ah, oh, but this is a tax, we, 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 this should be decided by unanimity. And it wouldn't have been, you know, it would have been a different story. So for my money, the free allocation for emissions trading was a very, in retrospect, it was the right way to introduce emissions trading, even if it was not the, the textbook way. I think, you know, on distributional issues, it's interesting you say you've talked about it. For me, all the things we do in terms of policy making in Brussels is usually addressing a risk and distributing the effort, the distributional issue. It's fundamental to everything we do. Um, and we do say in the book that we've had effort sharing decisions and compromises and we've come to arrangements in the EU and that we believe that we could do similar sorts of things at the UN level because there has to be effort made by everyone and to some extent all those 150 parties who've made contributions for Paris are accepting that they should do something. I, I say that understanding well that many of them have made their efforts conditional upon finance. But um, the idea that everyone should be in it is, I think, the big progress we've made since perhaps Copenhagen, because it's, it's, it surprised us as well, me, that there are so many countries that have come out and that, quite frankly, I mean, the UNFCCC estimates, or is it, I forget who it is exactly, who's estimated that these pledges made would bring us to 2.7 degrees centigrade above. Uh, I, I think all of that's very questionable. But I, it's very difficult to get a handle on the pledges and the contributions, uh, but it's even harder to sort of compute how much that would mean in terms of temperature increase. But what I think is significant is that we're breaking away from the business as usual. We are bringing the overshooting of two percent uh, of two degrees down from six, five, four, where we have talked in the past. And I mean now, you know, I, we have to hope that it's being drawn nearer and nearer the two degrees maximum that we can allow, and that by further review and tightening in the coming years, we'll make sure that we get to those two degrees. What shocks me a bit, and I can't really say very much about it, is the possibility that climate policies might impact on poor people most. I think you meant poor people in Europe. Um, I mean, I, I wouldn't, you know, I would hope that is not true. Uh, of course, rich people have more money to, and they can afford higher energy bills more easily, and they can afford more expensive cars and things. But in the case of things like cars, um, the savings in fuel by a car owner are quickly recovering the cost, the extra upfront cost of the technology that improves their efficiency. So the cars legislation, we believe, is good for consumers, 
and as the new cars feed their way into the second-hand car market, because a car lasts about 15 years in the EU and you know, poorer people have second-hand cars, it takes time for them to get them, but they'll be saving money as well on fuel compared to what would have been without the policy. And so I think it, it boils down to energy prices and I think you know, we have argued that arguably re renewable energy is transforming the energy markets because all of a sudden this energy is coming on stream which is zero marginal cost and I think it's bringing prices down. I, I, I haven't yet, or put it this way, I need convincing that there is an issue here that the poor are actually paying more because of climate policies. I, I, I don't believe that that is, a, is the case. I'd need to be convinced if it were. And then as for global carbon tax, I'm not a believer in it. I, I, it's not that I wouldn't want it. I would. But I don't think that's where we're going to go. I would also caution on linking. Of course, we, we want... Linking is a theoretical possibility between emissions trading schemes, but it's complicated, as has been shown when we linked currencies. <laughs> you're always linking to the weakest link in the currency union, as you would be linking to the weakest link in a carbon currency union. So we'd have to be damn sure that everyone's registry was as robust and their monitoring and reporting was as robust, etc., etc. But I think the issue isn't really, could, should we not have a global carbon price or should we not have a yeah a global carbon tax for me what is most important is we need global policies we need no we need policies globally we need policies to be implemented in all jurisdictions of the globe and they can be different but in the end the costs of those policies are internalized within that country's economy their businesses will have to sooner or later bear those costs and they will be competing on world markets with the products but those products will have in them the embedded cost of carbon corresponding with the policies that were in place in the jurisdiction they were manufactured in then we needn't worry about free riding so for me it's more important that every country puts in place policies than it is that we should do the same policies. So, I mean, that's my suggestion, and I mean, we can discuss because, uh, but I'd say, I'm, perhaps it's my Britishness, but I don't think we need a global government, you know, <laughs> in that sense. Okay, so please go ahead with questions, and I would like you to introduce uh, yourselves and use the micro because we are... Thank you very much. Uh, I'm Jose Antonio Zanabuja from Complutense University, now a Robert Schumann Fellow here at the AU. Uh, my question is related with the international dimension of uh, European Union climate uh, policy. And uh, you, you raise a very a highly relevant question issue that is the relationship between global leadership and the consistency and commitment of domestic policies relating climate or, or, or other, other, other fields. And, uh, traditionally, the European Union has been perceived, uh, seen as a global leader, uh, often confronting reluctant uh, actors such as the United States or, or, or China. This is at, at, at least the popular image or the, the, the broader image of the European Union as a global actor in this, in this field. Uh, in your opinion, and, and, and looking to Paris negotiations at the end of the year, in your opinion, what could be the, the effects of uh, events like uh, the dieselgate that uh, seems not to be uh, constrained to Volkswagen? Maybe other brands are also in, in European brands are also in, involved. If we look at the, at the press information just today. Uh, what are, in your opinion, the possible effects in, on the European Union leadership and in the European Union bargaining position uh, looking to, to Paris? Thank you. Well, that's an interesting one. I'll tell you one effect of Dieselgate. That's what you've called it. Um, I was going to be invited to do a 
tour of universities in Australia by the delegation in Australia, um, and they, they've abandoned the idea because they say with Dieselgate or with this Volkswagen thing, people have gone off the EU. Um, which I think is it's disappointing, not just because I won't go to Australia, um, but um, I think it, it, those sorts of things do enormous damage to the made in EU PLC. You know, every EU manufacturing company has to some extent suffered and is going to suffer from this image that we cheat, that we talk and we don't do. Um, so I think there is this collateral damage, if you like, uh, difficult to quantify. But um, it's not going to help the EU when we go into discussions um, about policies. And even when people read this book and say, oh, CO2's been working, has it? Has it really? You know, the doubts are there. So not enormous damage. Uh, but to the company, primarily. Um, but I think the there is a collateral damage on the whole sector. I was in the European Parliament on Monday at a hearing uh, in the Transport Committee and a representative from ASEA was there, the European car manufacturers, and he gave his presentation and there were questions from the floor. And one of the members of the Parliament said, you know, but can we believe you? Um, now, that's an example of how the European Association is now being, its credibility is being put in jeopardy. Um, and so I think there's been, quite apart from the fact that in this legislation that we've got on CO2 and cars, if I bring it back to that, it appears that Volkswagen has been complying with their targets, and I don't say otherwise because I have no evidence of otherwise. It's Volkswagen themselves who've said that there are some anomalies that they will disclose, I'm sure. sure. But it would be, it gives a company comparative advantage if they pretend to comply with regulation but don't actually do so. It gives them comparative advantage over their competitors in the same sector who are making investments in order to comply. So if I was another car manufacturer, I'd be so mad, not just for the tarnishing of the image, but also the fact that they were free riding on the efforts of the others in the sector. So I think the implications are serious, and I'm sure that, that you know there will be lots of follow-up, but I'm not working in this area um, specifically you know, of the, of the test cycles and things like that. But I think there's a resolve in Brussels to tighten things up, very definitely. Um, but in, when it comes to the negotiation, uh, yes, this will have a bit of an impact. Just before Copenhagen, do you remember the climate gate, the emails that leaked and undermined the authority of the IPCC? These things have repercussions and probably you know, they're not necessarily comparable, but uh, reputational damage was suffered by the IPCC, and it's been suffered to some extent by the EU PLC. Um, but I hope there won't be very great damage done. I think people have, we don't boast about leadership, I think. At least, I don't like to hear it. I know some people do. Uh, the EU's been trying hard. And we should have tried hard, and we've, we've succeeded to some extent in this decoupling. Um, but I, I'd say we just need to share, and we need to help. And if we can provide capacity building experience to other countries, so much the better, because as Massimo says, in the end, we're 10% of global emissions and falling. China's 25% and rising. So it matters much more what one country does than what the EU does. But on the other hand, we can try things out, learn by doing, and share. And, and that is useful, I think, contribution, even if it's not a contribution in terms of percentage points. It's a contribution in terms of policy thinking. There was a question, yeah. Thanks. I'm Heather Gravy, a Jean Monnet Fellow at the Robert Schumann Centre here. Peter, thank you very much for your um, uh, 
explanation and, and analysis of the complexities of policy making in this area as in others and you rightly pointed to the obstacles to collective um, action on an, on an issue like climate particularly through the, the single measure um, approach uh, of carbon tax. Could you also give us the benefit of your experience about opportunities and uh, particularly whether the opportunity of quantitative easing programs by various member states, uh, whether those could have been used rather more to uh, invest in the shift to a lower carbon economy. Are there examples of better practice and worse practice among member states and indeed in the United States in terms of using public investment on a large scale of that kind to shift faster? Um, was it an opportunity missed or were there some countries that, that did it well? Thanks. Thanks, Heather. Um, I, I don't know whether I know not much about quantitative easing and things. You know, I'm afraid, although I was head of cabinet during the five years of the economic crisis, and the, there was many interesting aspects to the, my job as head of cabinet. For that reason, during the crisis, you know, I'm not a monetary economist. Um, but I observe that the EU is very much more focused now on infrastructure and all the financing mechanisms those infrastructure projects need than ever before. Um, and to some extent, um, the Juncker 300 billion um, fund is something that is symptomatic. But we were already, we were in the budgetary in the new EU budget that was adopted in the last commission, there was the Connecting Europe facility, which was upscaled. Um, there were regional aids were made more, there was more climate content of regional aids. So we were understanding in our minds, we were thinking this is for the right sort of infrastructure to be built because we're so much dependent on grids, for example, all the renewable energy stuff. Um, has got to be distributed across the grid. And it was often shortcomings in the distribution grid that limited the extent to which uh, renewables can actually contribute. And I think the Iberian Peninsula is a good example of that. There are days when they can't sell the stuff because it's, they haven't got adequate interconnections. And I think that message has really, really passed and, and been understood. And the EIB in the last five or ten years has taken a much greater interest in uh, this climate, clean energy space and the funding of it. And so that's only to be welcomed, but it's of course, it's a process that does take time as well to, to get in place. Um, so the, on the other hand, there's been quantitative easing because there's been a very depressed economy and it's been very difficult times in terms of unemployment, uh, in terms of economic growth, and it's a difficult time to make environmental policy. I mean, I can say that with having had experience of it. Um, when the going gets really bad, the critical issue means keeping banks in business or keeping the monetary system running, you know, and the banking system running. Um, and to some extent, everything takes a second, second tier to that. But on the other hand, as happened in Portugal, when they had to build their program to come out of the crisis, they used that rebuilding in order to in, include more economic incentives to do the right thing in terms of, you know, energy relief for the right for renewable projects or whatever that Portugal did. They did a lot of greening of their budget under the climate and energy minister, George Moreira da Silva. Um, so they used the opportunity, that crisis, as an occasion to rethink, and not just to reboot the whole thing as it was before, which was the temptation. We want growth and jobs again, and they should be the same sorts of growth and jobs we had before the crisis. To some extent, the world's moving on, and we need to reboot our economies in a different way. We need a new operating system, in fact. And that's got to be one that climate change is more mainstreamed into. That's been the discourse uh, for the last few years. But if you want just one example of bad policy making that was driven by, by crisis constraints, 
several member states retroactively changed their renewable subsidies. So for investments that were already made, they said, oh, well, we had promised you a certain amount of subsidy for that investment, but we're now scaling that down. For an investor, that's about the worst news you can get. When you're committed, the bank's got to be paid, and suddenly the money flow dries up. And that was often because the money wasn't there. And that creates doubt in investors' minds, you know, I'm not going to do this again. Uh, so the retroactive revision of subsidies in the renewable energy space has been a case of bad practice that several member states had, have done. I don't say of necessity, but I'm sure that they didn't do this for fun. Um, but it was the wrong signal to send to a sector that was ostensibly one that we all want to see more of, but they got, they got hit in a very negative way. So there are examples of, of let's say, bad practice. Yeah. Hello, I'm Ava, I'm a PhD student uh, here at UI in economics. And um, so I'm interested in these topics and I, I believe that we all are and uh, that we're all well-hearted and also DG Climate and so on. But I always put it up with because if someone does not um, is not as well-hearted or thinks that um, their other find it um, not very convincing when when uh, when we start the discussion with a graph like the one you started with because if someone does not um, is not as well-hearted or thinks that um, there are other priorities other than climate change and so on it's very difficult to convince that peop that person with with a graph in which you see that uh, greenhouse, you, you, you plot only the greenhouse gases of the, uh, on pr production yeah. in the European Union, and you plot the GDP of the European Union, but this says nothing about um, the overall uh, greenhouse gases uh, in the world, so in particular it doesn't say anything about carbon leakage, which could be explained, which uh, could explain the, the curve in the graph, and it also doesn't say uh, which at least you would say that then um, uh, EU climate policy uh, has at least had a success in um, in uh, removing pollution to some extent within the EU, which let's say for Europeans that's a good thing, even if in China uh, emissions are increasing, still for uh, EU citizens this would be still uh, advantage, uh, an advantage. But um, it could also be explained just by the fact of uh, imports, but just yeah. by the fact that production was um, uh, translated to the to to to, to, to Asia, true. for instance. So I'm I'm myself I'm not a climate skeptic, but I'm just saying that it's um, it's frustrating if we are in a talk like this and it's somehow um, present. It's you start with a graph that then. Um, you would lose any 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 climate skeptic or anyone who yeah. would think that some other policy might be more uh, urgent. Well, look, the prioritization of different policies. Um, you know, I mean, for me, climate's a big priority. Um, perhaps for a developing country, it would be poverty eradication, and of course, that would be their, you know, first priority. But I think what we're trying to do is show that we have managed to gain economic growth at the same time as emissions reductions. We've done that, as the second graph showed, through improving our energy intensity, uh, uh, yeah, uh, reducing our energy intensity and the carbon intensity of energy. And those two, uh, particularly the energy intensity of production is actually something that even China is going to do and already doing and will continue to do. It will, it will improve its energetic efficiency in the coming decades. They will go on producing more, but per unit of output, their performance is going to increase, is going to improve. So, in fact, what we're showing in Europe is a developed economy's uh, history there are many contributors to this decoupling. It's not just climate policy. Uh, I would accept. Uh, 
But first, I would say we're using the methodology that the Kyoto system works, that uses. So when you say in Kyoto we reduce this or that, that's counting according to this methodology. So you can't fault us for using the methodology, I hope, I mean, in that sense. Consumption will be addressed when all parties are covered by climate policies. And from the minute, you see, China's putting in place a nationwide carbon trading scheme from 2017. That's their recent declaration. They're doing pilot studies now, where about 40% of their manufacturing industry is covered already. But they're going to do something national as of 2017. Now, that's going to mean they're doing, there's some sort of carbon constraint, or their market would not work. And we've got a carbon constraint. So why should we be counting their emissions as our emissions? Because I'll tell you the most strongest argument why we shouldn't do that is the sheer complexity of the exercise. And that is the rather unglamorous reason that we invoke first and foremost why a consumption-based approach to monitoring emissions wouldn't work. It is incredibly complicated. So how would, you know, even if you're, how would you implement it, you'd probably implement it through a border tax adjustment, probably. And you'd have to compute the carbon content of everything that was imported or the primary products that were imported like steel and concrete. So what would we do for imports from China from 2017? Would we assume that their carbon trading scheme wasn't working or that it wasn't good enough? We'd have to take some value judgments there. Now, th those are going to be very, very difficult to make. So we believe, and I speak on behalf of my colleagues in the Commission in DG Klima, that a consumption-based monitoring and policy as a basis for monitoring and policy is unduly complicated, unworkable, I could say. And, and because policy is what you, what's possible rather than optimal, I think this is a big stumbling block. We have found that the monitoring has been one of the most challenging aspects of our scheme. Without good monitoring, you can't be held accountable, so you don't buy if you're not going to actually be able to be held accountable, you don't need to have the, all the allowances you should have. So the whole market loses its effectiveness through lack of ability to monitor. So I think consumption-based, it sounds tempting from a, you know intellectual point of view. I can very much understand where you're coming from. But from a practical implementing point of view, this is too complicated and would therefore be unfeasible to implement. That would be my spontaneous reaction. But as for the graph provoking you, I'm sorry it did. Um, you're not the only one. The great thing is I know some brilliant professors at Oxford who would have equally been feeling exactly as you did. But hang on, where, 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 should, where should we start then if we don't start from where... Oh, well, it's, it, it tells another story, I think. They're both, you know, we, 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 we can, it is indeed. Perhaps this, I would say, is perhaps the most contentious question in climate policy making. But of course, if the EU were to somehow be made responsible for emissions in China, how would we exercise any control over those emissions from the EU? The Chinese government would say, I'm sorry, clear off. For those of you who are interested in aviation, by the way, I mean, we did try to extend our scheme to third country flights, which you could call third country imports. And the third countries went absolutely ballistic and refused to be governed by what they saw as an extraterritorial measure. That was our actual experience. And all we were trying to do was regulate the emissions of aircraft that took off and landed in the EU. We, we didn't mind where they flew. 
but they happened to fly to other big countries and those other big countries were upset and you know so those are the sorts of obstacles that would arise if we went for a consumption-based approach how would we then regulate Chinese emissions because if we couldn't regulate it would be pretty tough saying well you you're responsible for these emissions because you're consuming the goods but you can't do anything to reduce them so it boils down to policy making and yeah that's what we're here for to have a good discussion I'm enjoying this Okay, so uh, I can take uh, perhaps a couple of questions from, from here, and I have um, some from the outside public. So, um, anyone who wants to intervene? Okay, so Claudio first, and, and, and then we'll. Um, quick question is on uh, public support for uh, climate policy. I think that, uh, um, I mean, climate policy will be eventually costly for society. And of course, there's a problem of distribution, but there's also a problem of public support, because without public support, it will be hard to implement. And as an example, is that Germany could do its policy for renewables because he had a very public support for it. Uh, what is the opinion of uh, your opinion, the opinion of the commission of that, if you are thinking about that uh, or working on this? That doesn't take too long for me to respond to. Of course, we do need public support. Um, you know what? Uh, I was my first job was a tax inspector in the UK, which isn't the most popular job. <laughs> um, and one of the things I learned in learning about taxes was that tax systems only actually work if there's public support for them, um, and that treasuries will quickly go bankrupt if there isn't public support and public compliance. You know, and the willingness to to pay. Um, and it's true, I think, of climate policies too. I mean, you know, they only exist because they have uh, support, sufficient support. Of course, it's how much you're prepared to pay, which is the really critical question. And I think all I can say is we've taken the utmost effort to try to minimize the costs of fulfilling the commitments that our leaders have made. Um, hence the use of market-based mechanisms, such as the emissions trading, for example as opposed to regulatory measures which we believe would have been more expensive. So for me, maintaining public support is also about maintaining the minimum level of costs to fulfill your commitments, um, because we absolutely need to keep everybody on board. And of course, if things are done at lower cost, you can go further. So it's about costs. But I think in the end, people in Europe, Perhaps there's a greater willingness to pay than in other countries, but I don't know. Um, I think so far we've stayed on side, I would think. We've always had the full support of the European Parliament, you know, for the legislation. We have to have it. And the European Parliament is for us the, the most, well, it's directly elected by the citizens of the EU, so we have to th think of that as our our sondage for the public you know they they represent the public mood and and there i would say they're they're still on site they still want us to go for the 40 percent and do that um at, at the eu level as well as at the national level it's not just of course at the eu level that all these policies are implemented it's also national policies so that's how i reply Hi, I'm Marco Casari, I'm from the University of Bologna, and I would like to return um, to the question about the consumption-based versus production-based <coughs> accounting of yeah. uh, uh, carbon emissions, because, you know, I agree with you that uh, a consumption-based sort of um, monitoring and taxation or regulations is more difficult, is definitely more difficult than a production-based uh, accounting system. However, uh, you know, I agree with, uh, with the students that uh, the usual um, graph that is shown, like, like the one you, uh, you, you put up at the beginning, uh, gives also, um, you know, the clear impression that the policy, the European policies were successful, and the other graph doesn't give that picture, okay, not at least that uh, clearly, okay, uh, and that might be a marketing reason why 
you know, uh, at the European level, we are very uh, fond of that of that specific, uh, yeah. you know, evolution of the graph. Um, however, the deeper question is, uh, or the deeper message that is given, the, is that if the European Union was able in the last 20 years to achieve that decoupling of economic growth and, and emissions, everyone can do it. Yeah. But I'm not at all convinced of this, okay? Because uh, rich countries can probably follow that path, but you know, they are going to consume pro uh, products that uh, are uh, uh, involve dirty production, and those are going to be done somewhere in the world, okay? Typically the most, the poorest countries. So maybe China can follow that path just by delocalization production to even poorer countries, mm -hmm. right? So the dangerous message uh, which I think maybe the, the student was pointing to, uh, and in my opinion, you know, is this, that everyone can do it. And uh, I, I don't think, mm, you know, it's a question for you if this is the case. I have then two specific uh, questions about uh, the mm, European policies in terms of um, carbon emission reductions. One is uh, about the, um, the regulation of the um, uh, flight transportation uh, sector that you mentioned. You know, did this regulation, was it uh, you know, kept by the European Union or was it dropped? Uh, and the other is about agriculture, which is a sector with, of uh, you know, minor economic importance in terms of contribution to the GDP, at least uh, in Europe, but um, it's a relatively high emitter of uh, gas uh, heating. So what are the specific policies, if you can tell us, uh, uh, targeted toward agriculture? Thank you. Okay, thank you for the questions. Um, I accept this is, this, this is, we're addressing the core difficulties. Look, I would say this. Um, the EU has decoupled its emissions from economic growth and you seem, forgive me saying so, you seem unhappy with that. I mean, what, I don't know how else to say, but you know, we, we've reduced our emissions in line with our commitments. Um, the fact that there are other countries that have no commitments um, or are beginning to have commitments, you know, you're implying someone has got to pollute, I think. And that, I think, was what you were saying. If it wasn't China, it might be other countries. I don't think that that is entirely true. I think that in due time, when they are of a developed sufficiently developed for them to come within the group of advanced economies. Um, everyone's going to have to be doing it better. Every, we're going to have to move away from resource-intensive production. Um, and in the end, everyone's going to have to do it. I think our economies, we're developing technologies in Europe which everyone will have to use in time that are massively more efficient, cleaner, per unit of output. And they're going to have to become generalized. And I think by the EU trying to develop these technologies, they then become cheaper for other countries to deploy at lower cost. Germany's investment in renewables is enormous. But they're bringing the cost of renewables down such that poorer countries can actually deploy them without having those high learning costs been borne by those poorer countries. So they s there's a benefit for everybody by Germany doing something that looks expensive. Everyone couldn't afford to do what Germany's doing, but we won't have to do what Germany's doing. Others will be able to benefit from what Germany's doing. Um, so, you know, I'm not going to have a better argument to give you this afternoon. I'm sorry, you know, this is all uh, things that perhaps would warrant more dedicated sessions, but it might be a really interesting uh, subject of a dedicated session on consumption versus production-based and how both could be addressed and what the shortcomings are and difficulties of both. Um, but on the ETS and aviation, you asked what had happened. Well, what happened that we, we had this 
global reach to our provision that said any aircraft landing in the EU or taking off in the EU, wherever it was going in the world, would be covered for its emissions would be covered by the EU emissions trading scheme, unless the other party, the other the destination country, had equivalent measures, in which case we could exempt each other from our equivalent measures or we could do an outward flight from the EU covered by the EU scheme and the inward flight being covered by whatever country it was that was doing something equivalent. So there's a sort of reciprocity agreement in the directive, but no other country chose to use that. We just had an, a, a refusal to comply by so many governments, you know, and their airlines. Um, what happened was that the European Parliament on, on the basis of a proposal by the Commission, suspended the scheme for three years for its third country application, but it still applies within the EU, in the EEA actually. So flights between Paris and Milan are covered by the emissions trading scheme. And there's practically full compliance on those intra-EU flights, even by China Airlines and other airlines uh, which are third country airlines just landing in Paris, flying on then to some other place in the EU. That last intra-EU leg is, is covered. And we don't have full compliance, but we have pretty full and we're working on it. You know, enforcement action is being taken. So now what we did was we said we'll suspend the scheme for three years. We, we applied an exemption subject to ICAO agreeing a global market-based mechanism at its next, next assembly, this time next year. So if ICAO, the International Civil Aviation Organization, doesn't agree on a global market-based mechanism, the directive automatically reverts to its full scope in 2017. That's how the law is written, which would present all sorts of problems again as we had last time. But we would have given the ICAO one more time to try. Because one of our complaints is that we've been wanting ICAO to do more for so long. And at a certain point, ICAO agreed that countries could do their own thing and regions could do their own thing. So we did. But they didn't like what we did. So that was the problem. But we've given them another, try, uh, another chance and we, we're working very hard to make sure that they do that they are ready to have a global market-based mechanism this time next year. Perhaps all the modalities won't be finalized, but the commitment will be there. And then you could argue that the EU action, however unsuccessful on the face of it, exerted some leverage over the international process. But that is still to be proven. It might not work. And I'm not sure we exactly wanted to exert leverage. We wanted to do something about the problem uh, and what we did didn't please everybody but we agreed to hold back for and give everyone a chance so it's not gone away and it's one of my major tasks in the transport department to try and find a solution to that or help find a solution um, agriculture it's very interesting that i think land use change was not included in the 2020 targets that the EU made for greenhouse gases. It said it would reduce by 20% in 2020, but that didn't include the land use sector. Whereas the 40% in 2030, it is explicit that it does include the land use sector. So that's quite a step change. The first, the fact that the 2020 target didn't explains why there isn't much policy in this area. We've tried to green the common agricultural policy as much as we could at the last budgetary round, but we didn't get all that far, but you know, we've, we've started. Um, but I think the, there's going to be a lot of work done in the next 10 years on the, in the field of agriculture. Um, and I think that's very difficult work for the reasons you probably know, it's differing, difficult monitoring. Agriculture can be good or bad for the climate, depending, but we've got to make sure that we come out net good. Uh, but we're going to have to start counting it. We are going to do that, and we're going to have to take measures. So it's really, that's the next, it's a huge chapter of the next book, you know. Um, for the moment, we're just, we've just increased our monitoring capability 
but we need to do much, much more. Thank you. Um, a couple of quick questions. I'm taking both both of them. Yeah. So Stefano first. Okay. I have a, a question for uh, Massimo. Uh, when Peter was mentioning the recent study saying that, uh, well, they estimate that the current pledges of uh, emission reductions would uh, allow us to keep temperature increase within 2.7 degrees. You were moving your head. You, were, you didn't seem convinced. So I, I wonder whether you, you have more information that, uh, than us. And then, uh, or that, then in that report, and um, then what do you think about the uh, yeah of the system that seems we are going to to have where basically there's a volu voluntary uh, uh, voluntary uh, commitments and whether and whether I'm just wondering whether uh, you know each country will have any say on the on what the other countries uh, uh, commit to and and what they do. So in the Christoph. Well, both Stefan and Christoph uh, are from the FSR climate. Okay, yeah. Uh, this, the question is to, to Peter. Um, would you say, or would you agree with me that it might be a very smart strategy to tackle local pollution and with, so focusing on the local pollution where you probably have a lot of public support for um, solving the climate problem? In a way, having something you're talking about NOx, for example, and sell it to the people, so it's nice for you. You can take a brief, enjoy, you survive it, and then by doing that, solving the climate problem. Well, I want to. We have several questions from the audience outside uh, here, but I'm 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 taking just one because we don't have time. So, one of the of the people who are following us uh, is asking, uh, Do you see to to, to Peter? the Volkswagen case having an impact in the EU climate policy. I, I would ask uh, Massimo first to, 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 to yeah. intervene, and also if you want to, to give some final comments on, on what we were saying, because I'm, I'm, I'm closing after, sure. after Peter. I think, I, I mean, I was shaking because, because it's for a very simple reason. We, the INDCs are for 2025 or 2030. And some of them are conditional, there are low and high pledges. We don't even know for 2030 exactly what they mean. Let alone projecting another 70 years to 2100, by which year we measure temperature, without considering, moreover, the fact that emissions and temperature, the relation between these two variables is there's a lot of uncertainty. So there's huge, for the same emission, you can get a lot of different temperatures. There was a huge discussion whether it was 2.7 or 3.5, as you heard in the press. And I thought that was pointless to talk about uh, such small margins because the extent to which after 2030 the INDC's emissions will continue at which level is completely arbitrary. Which brings the point that you were also suggesting in your second comment is to what extent those INDC's bottom-up policies will eventually build into something larger. I think that we have no idea whether that will work or not. And actually, I'm a bit pessimistic on that side. I don't see why it should how easy it would become an agreement that actually manages and induces cooperation at the high level of ambition that we need to get to two degrees, but also three degrees is ambitious as well. We need the ambitions of there. So with that said, I think I, think I, I agree with the EU policy. I think there should be a bit, maybe as, as a final remark, a focus exactly on this side. How can we, can we get cooperate? How can we transform Paris, which I think is going to be a positive outcome, into a step and iterative process in terms of policy that ensures that at some point we have sufficient compliance. And one thing is, for example, to, to provide carrots through transfers, but that's politically difficult. One is to provide sticks, for example, border tax adjustments or other things. Uh, and we have not heard a lot about this from Europe, and we might, might be, might, there might be an additional role for, for Europe to, European policy to play on this. With that said, I I think I, I, I found European policies to be a great step forward, especially as a learning process. Okay, well, I, I, I will just say, in response to Christoph's point about air quality, is um, we've always been very mindful of the co-benefits and the interrelation between air quality and CO2 emissions. You see these, um, that the, the pollution in countries like China, you know, it became 
a high priority to close coal-fired power stations near to urban areas because of its effect on uh, urban air quality, but it also resulted in closing of coal-fired power stations uh, because, you know, so there may have been a CO2 benefit. And we've always, um, since the two portfolios separated in the Commission, Environment and Climate, you know, there were then two heads of cabinet round the table but I think it was well understood that what was good for one was usually good for the other. Um, because, you know, pollution, people's mind, they often don't know exactly what causes what in terms of effect. So, you know, what we are all urging is more sustainable development in sustainable transport systems, sustainable energy systems. And there's always going to be arguments um, of some sort about you know, measurement and whether or not renewables are quite as clean as they say they are, for instance, because you've got to use concrete and steel to build a wind turbine, you've got to dispose of solar panels, you know. There's always those edges around a policy which you can long discuss and say, well, you know, is it as good as we think? Um, but one of the lessons, if, and I may finish sort of on this note of our of our learning experience as recounted in the book is the huge benefit would be for the world to get started on policy making. Because what you start with isn't optimal, it even might be quite crude at the beginning, but improvement comes over time. Uh, that is how we did in the EU where in the mid-90s there were no climate policies. Um, and so we've started relatively from scratch at a later stage than many other areas of EU policy, you know, agriculture, customs union, you know, they all existed uh, before industry policies, you know. But the climate was relatively new. Uh, it started late. Um, but the key thing was to get started. And once started, we realized we weren't doing it in quite the best way, so we should change and improve. And that would be our hope of Paris, is that the process of starting is what is going to be the most important outcome of Paris and uh, its global reach uh, for all the inadequacies of the um, INDCs, and I, I would fully agree with Massimo. You know, I wasn't saying this 2.7 degrees centigrade was what the Commission said, or I think it was uh, researched by the UNFCCC, but in any case, it has all the caveats it's got. But I think what um, the UNFCC Secretariat is trying to convey is the message of hope, um, because at the scientific community as of now in its latest uh, assessment report says yes it is 95% sure that it's caused by human activity climate change but the two degrees is still within reach there has to be this message that we can do it um, and this is a message I felt very strongly about at Oxford because there was a series of lectures just like the one you've been having here uh, that started last academic year and is continuing now. And I was in Oxford last week, actually, um, to hear one of these lectures. Um, and I went to the head of the Oxford Martin School, Professor Golden, who was here holding the series, because we'd heard a lot of old scientists tell us how desperately, critically bad the situation was. I mean, the first few lectures were about climate science, and you looked at it from an atmospheric science point of view, atmospheric physics, biodiversity, water, stress, you know, and whatever you heard week after week, you got more and more depressed, you know, and I could hear, I could feel the students in the room, the younger generation thinking, God, you guys, you've all, you know, you've really messed it up, and we're just trying to sort of come out, study and go into jobs and things like that. And I felt there was a desperate need for there to just be a bit of balance in the course. And so I asked for this lecture to be take place in Oxford last week on EU policy. And it was given by Jostan Beck just to give a, a sense of hope that things can be done and that we can get better and we will get better. And technology costs and such like will be working in our favour. 
but we've got to make the effort. And so for me, um, that's, if you like, the, the sub-message of the book is that it's a learning process, but there is still hope that we can fix this in time. And it's our duty to, you know, do everything we can, but it's not one of unmitigated pessimism and hopelessness, because I think that would be a desperately depressing uh, position to be in for anyone. But, um, you know, for my money, um, the contribution we've made is, is just an attempt to provide some hope for everybody that we can get better at things as we get practice in doing them. So I stop there, but thank you very much for your interactions. Not always easy to reply to, I might say, but you know, I'm, I'm not the, always the, the best person to argue this. There are, um, well, I, it's four o'clock. I'm sure we could m continue here much more time because, uh, but but we have to close now. And uh, I would like to to thank a lot, uh, Peter, for accepting being here because we are a, a European university. We are an academic institution, and we have to question things. We have to um, sometimes, um, you know. Uh, be very critical and that's what uh, it should be expected from us and uh, I understand that uh, you were in a difficult position because you come here as a civil servant and and and, and also with a book on on on, on easy uh, climate policy EU climate policy so I think that um, and this is really, really. Uh, I mean, we really appreciate uh, your your time, uh, your 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 contributions here, and uh, we are doubly thankful for for your presence here. So well, thanks thank a lot, you. and we close now. Okay. Thank you.